0: Welcome to another episode of Ripple Effect Connection. I'm your host, Christy Hugick. It's 2024, and I'm excited to continue to help bridge the gap between impactful messages and inspiring messengers. The goal here is to ignite transformative discussions that create a ripple effect of positive change in your life and the lives of others. Prepare to be inspired today as I introduce my guest, Jason Kuhn, whose life epitomizes the ripple effect in action. Jason's story encapsulates resilience and transformation in its purest form. Initially, he was a Division I baseball player and high level prospect, but his career was unexpectedly derailed by a case of the Yips. However, rather than letting this setback define him, it catapulted him onto an extraordinary path that reshaped the course of his life. Jason's journey led him to the military and the Navy SEALs. Now, he's serving his country in a different capacity as a motivational speaker and performance coach through his company, Stonewall Solutions. The core mission is to cultivate a winning team first formula, nurturing mindset and leadership skills across a wide array of settings, spanning from corporate environments to elite athletic teams. He has been featured in Sports Illustrated, Fox Sports, New York Times, ESPN, the Golf Channel, and many other platforms and publications. Moreover, Jason specializes in helping athletes conquer the yips, employing a nuanced approach that has helped professional athletes like World Series champion Tyler Matzik of the Atlanta Braves and 2009 U.S. Open winner Lucas Glover reclaim their peak levels of performance. His wealth of experience offers invaluable insights. His perspective is unique, and anyone who comes in contact with him understands what an incredible personal journey it's been and why some of his tools for success are so effective. Here is my episode with Jason Kuhn. Jason, first and foremost, I want to welcome you to the podcast here, but thank you for so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Christy. I'm excited to be here.
0: I ask almost every guest who comes on first and foremost, what is your why? So I start with a big question, but what, what, what do you see as being your why for what you, why you do what you do?
1: Yeah, well, it would be several things, you know. I don't think I can narrow it to one. I guess first and foremost, my purpose would be to serve God to the best of my ability, and then from there, you know, uh, make a living and support my family. I have two beautiful girls and a little boy, and people ask me why I got out of the SEAL teams. That's (laughs) I missed them like crazy, so that was a big part of it. And I get to do that through my through my work, through Stonewall Solutions and yipsfree.com and help other people utilizing the experiences that I had. A lot of those experiences were very painful and difficult, but I think that's what provides fulfillment in our lives. And that's what I seek is fulfillment. We're not always going to be happy because life's inherently unfair. It's mean, it's dark sometimes, but the way we respond to that pain assigns greater meaning to it. So that's the perspective I try to keep it in. And if I can help others overcome some of the same issues or problems that I had utilizing lessons learned from those experiences and make a living doing it, then we're winning.
0: Yeah. And I know we're going to get into some of that because I want people, I feel like for people to understand what you do, they do need to kind of understand your background and your path to how you got where you are today. So that path came, I, you know, you were a division one athlete as a baseball player. So can you talk about that background and kind of how maybe that laid the groundwork for where you are today?
1: Sure. Yeah. So growing up, Really, all I ever wanted to do was play baseball. I always had an interest in the military. I thought it was cool, specifically special operations and fighter pilots. But there was no war for any sustained period of time in the 80s and 90s. I was born in 1980, and I felt like baseball was the arena where I could find serious athletes and test myself and compete in the arena. And I loved the game, just intrinsically loved playing that game. Played other sports too, but baseball was always always my love. I got a scholarship to play at Tennessee Tech. Um, When I was younger, in my teenage years, I was really, really good, had some things happen, battled a lot of injuries, but still found myself, you know, I was hoping to get drafted or, you know, play at a power five school, but I still found my way to a division one school. Had a lot of, a lot of issues there, probably don't have time to get into. Our coach was relieved of his duties after my second year there as well. So I transferred. That's my released. There was no transfer portal at the time. Went to Middle Tennessee State. My junior year there, we were in the Sunbelt Conference at the time, which was a pretty high-ranked conference for baseball, and we won it. It had a top 25 ranking as a mid-major. I was a relief pitcher. I would close games or come into high-leverage situations with runners on base. Close scores was my role most of the time. I thrived in it, did well. And went up and played the Northwoods league after that, and then came back into my senior season. And I would say I was an above average pitcher in college up to that point, but not much above average until this kind of six month window where I started dominating my, I just grew and got bigger naturally and through weight room training and just, I was still growing. I was still getting taller. My head was getting bigger. You know, I didn't, I grew late. So my velocity picked up and I started dominating. And then I went out one day and it was like, I forgot how to throw a baseball. I I walked the bases loaded in an inner squad, and then I couldn't even play catch anymore. It got to where I couldn't throw and play catch with anyone past about 15 feet. I threw six wild pitches in an inning. That was the most ever in the NCAA, as far as I know, it still is. And my baseball career completely imploded right there.
0: It's crazy to think about that, and I know you would... Define that, you know, and I think people think of the yips, they think of golf, but it's not just golf. So I think you would have you eventually define that as the yips. And then how does that whole experience with baseball lead you to the Navy SEALs? So what did you learn from that baseball experience that you could carry to the Navy SEALs? And and, uh, funny how the paths work, where it can actually lead you to improving maybe what was holding you back in the baseball end of things.
1: Yeah, so well, we'll get into the yips in a bit. The difference between it and what I think is traditionally referred to as performance anxiety, and the differences between the two, because I think that that's one of the biggest misunderstandings is people think that when when we refer to the term yips, that they're nervous and they can't compete because they're nervous, which isn't quite true. So, I, I didn't feel any escalated level of nerves or anxiety when I went out when I went out to throw in an inner squat against my own buddies. I was in a de-escalated environment, not an escalated one, and I'm having this tension and I can't get the ball out of my hand properly. So it was very confusing, and that confusion and frustration, and people start to label you as mentally weak. You can't handle it because they don't know what else to attribute it to. I had never heard of the term yips until years after I had experienced it and baseball was over. I had no idea what was going on. I know that I still felt like a predator on the inside, on the mound, when I would get up there with the ball, but when I would try to throw it, It would go way, way off target. I mean, I almost hit the on deck batter one time. So we're talking gross, massive misses to a point you can't play catch anymore. And it's embarrassing and you don't understand it. It's frustrating. And you're trying to fight it, but you don't know how to fight it. And everything you do seems to make it worse. And it gets really dark. And it got dark for me. I had to fight and scrap just to make the travel team as a freshman. And then I developed myself and I overcame. There was a lot of things that happened in college that I don't always get into publicly, but I typically will talk through with my clients. So as we understand cause and effect and things, but there were a lot of really difficult things that happened. And I get myself in a position to still get drafted and play professionally. And then you implode like that. It was very difficult. And I I wasn't traveling with the team anymore. And I didn't quit. I kept going, but it got really dark. I started drinking a lot. And I remember One day I woke up in my hallway of my apartment complex. I didn't even make it all the way to my room. I was in my hallway, face down, clothes on, hat on, drool all over the floor. I peeled my face up off the carpet, kind of looked around and I thought, okay, man, this thing happened to you. It is what it is. Is it going to define who and what you're going to be for the rest of your life? And I knew I needed to make a change, but I didn't know what to change because I'd done so many things right. You know, I had a pretty good attitude. I was a hard worker. I I lifted weights twice a day. I put in the time and effort that you're supposed to put into and... But I realized in that moment, you know, regardless of how unfair it may be, a victimhood mentality produces more victimhood. Self pity is a worthless emotion in an effort to win and overcome because you can't, you're just stuck there and it cycles. And that's where I was at. I was on hell on earth because my decisions were bad. My decisions were bad because self loathing and helplessness, helplessness especially. I went out and I threw for six hours. Like, I'm just going to throw until I can again. And I threw and I threw and I threw because I'm a fighter. Fighters fight. And I could not move my arm anymore. And I was more inaccurate at the end than I was at the beginning. And that's when I felt defeated because I couldn't punch it. You know, I grew up fighting as a kid. I couldn't punch it. I couldn't outlift it. I couldn't out throw it. And it just it just broke me. But there were two things. I th- well, a few things I figured out. One, I, I was reaching for the bottle again one particular night just to sleep. And I, I was like, okay, I'm just going to not do that. And I pushed the bottle of whiskey away. And then I just decided that I was going to pray and try to connect to my creator. I thought, I'm here. Something made me, you know, it didn't come from nowhere. And whatever it is, is probably more intelligent than I am. So I'm going to try to connect to it. I try to be still and just feel God's presence. And I start crying. And I understand say, why? Like, why did this happen? If I could, if I could understand the purpose of it, then I could move on, you know? But just seen, I didn't see any, this didn't make any sense. And, and I felt these words on my heart, just wait, something better is coming for you. And in that moment, I, had faith that there was purpose to what I was experiencing. I didn't know what that would be yet or what would come. Uh, The World Trade Center attacks had just occurred or occurred right after that. And a lot of things came together to form my motivation to want to go into the Navy and become a SEAL. But I also realized that the game completely defined me. And by that, I mean I was dependent on it for my sense of self-worth. So I learned something that really, really helped me in the SEAL teams was that what I do should not define who I am. Who I am should define what I do. And rather than allowing the profession to dictate my sense of self-worth, allow my intrinsic sense of self-worth to create my success within the profession. And I started, you know, I think high achievers focus on the bad. And I thought about a lot of things that went wrong and a lot of external entities who contributed to it. Rightfully so. But when I stopped and I was like, what do I need to learn about myself Um, is when you know, when, when all of that changed, I started thinking about some of the good things, a no hitter and a game winning hit and standing on my ground and fighting as a kid against bullies. And I thought you are tough, man. Like you, you are who you are. You don't need anybody's validation of it. Cause those things have already happened. Just be grounded in the truth of it, but channel it into service of team and mission. And that's the mentality that I did my best to take into the SEAL teams. And I think that's what helped me be successful there.
0: That's an amazing thing, because when you think about it, your, your confidence can get so shot in yourself, you know, with what you went through, and then you take that to the Navy SEALs, and you now learn a ton about how to perform under pressure. So what did that training in the Navy SEALs teach you the most about performing under pressure?
1: Well, it taught me what performance is, One, I think that performance is simply an ability to execute fundamentals under stress, And fundamentals are controllable actions of value. So throughout BUDS and war and combat, you learn to focus on what you can affect and work the problem, no matter how much chaos may be unfolding around you. And by focusing on fundamentals, I break fundamentals, those controllable actions of value into three categories. You know, a lot of times all of our effort is spent on how we do what we do, the mechanics of actions and skill. So I think natural talent and the development of skill and understanding the fundamental pieces of how to swing a bat, throw a ball, swing a golf club are vital and i rank them at number 1. We got to be good at what we do or none of the other stuff matters, right? But you also have to have the fundamentals of mindset. You got to know how to think properly and then also the fundamentals of culture, how we interact with each other. So the fundamentals of how we do what we do, how we think and how we interact with our teammates work together to produce best possible outcome, which creates best possible outcomes, creates consistency, consistency creates separation. And then separation is what makes us elite, as there's only a few. But I also learned some things on the yip side that are different. So the way we fire a gun, there's you, there's a flinch that guys have a lot of times. And I learned, so on, on that side of things, I learned some some stuff that I have translated into throwing, because it's a very similar occurrence, a mechanical interruption through a subconscious initiation versus a conscious awareness and fear and anxiety. So learning how to train myself, how to shoot properly helped me go back and develop a system to override the tension we're experiencing when we yip. So if we kind of separate in those two categories, so several, several, several things. I mean, I've created a curriculum off of a lot of it for mental toughness and how to shift our focus. But one of the biggest things is the team first mindset. And typically when people teach a team first mindset, They'll come in and and they'll try to relate combat to, say, a corporate setting or something like that, say, serve each other because it's the morally correct thing to do and because that's what we did when we were in war and then tell a cool war story and everybody's fired up and then the motivation wears off three days later. And we're not honoring the differences in the environment. In combat, we had to serve each other to survive. So there's an underlying force that's driving it that is not the same in other competitive environments. So the assertion I make to folks, is that you'll reach a higher level of performance, not only as a team, but also as an individual by focusing more on others than yourself. And I break down how our fear is based from self-concern. So we defer that concern to the well-being of teammate and mission. And then that action then creates respect, trust, and ultimately love and a desire to fight for each other with several examples and things like that. And even application drills that I put Tyler Matzek, the pitcher of the Atlanta Braves through to prove it, And then when he got in a game and they asked him, you know, what were you thinking about? He's, I was just thinking about picking up my teammate who was struggling and that produced the performance. So it's, it's showing them how this kind of stuff will help. It all falls under the umbrella of performing and winning and winning big. You know, I want people I work with and teams I work with to go out and absolutely dominate.
0: You hit on something that's great, right? Because we're, we're talking about this team thing, but you've been able to translate this to help a bunch of different people out in the in the real world here do things but let me jump off there and say how do you translate that to working for an individual sport like golf you know like i know we're going to talk about lucas uh, lucas glover for those who are listening you know 2009 us open champion he's been a it's been a golfer for a long long time and and lucas had a pretty severe case of the yips and was having a hard time and lucas met jason and jason got Lucas back to his winning way. So based on what you said, you know, I think we're wondering how do you translate that to an individual sport like golf where you're not necessarily playing for a team?
1: Yeah, well, if I may, you know, I I think Lucas got himself back to winning form. I just shared some lessons learned and some tools for his toolkit through the experiences I had had. I had been where he was and found a way to the other side and he just needed, he just needed the solutions. Once he applied them, it was all him. You know, I can't go do it. He does. But uh, OK, so how do we make that translation? So I think that just like we honor the differences and the nuances of the environment from, say, corporate to combat, but it still all matters. Right. It still all plays in. So the example I'll give people in the team first is if you were to come fight me and, and if you win, you can have the status of having taken down a Navy SEAL. Would you fight me? Most people say no. And I say, well, what if I had the person you love the most behind me in the world? and you had to come through me or you'd never see him again. Would you fight me now? Well, everyone would. And not only would they fight, they'd probably find a way to win, but the problem didn't change. The motivation behind the problem changed, but that didn't pop out of thin air with magic. It was created by meeting an expectation and a standard over time. And so you can take these sort of things and apply them to any competitive environment. That being said, some are more relevant than others. I have 14 fundamentals of winning and some are more relevant than others according to what that competitive environment is, whether it's the corporate boardroom an individual golfer or a college baseball team or a pro baseball team. So we key in on the the ones that are most specific. So With the team first mind, though, and an individual golfer, there's always a supporting cast of some sort. There's agents, managers, caddy relationships, all sorts of things. And it's that greater purpose that's in your heart. Because if we're playing for status, what I mean is to be a big deal, I am dependent on other people thinking I'm a big deal. And I can't control what anybody thinks about me. So if my self-worth and identity is attached to something that I can't control and can constantly change then I'm always under that pressure and stress and I'm trying to not fail and I'm tight instead of where I want to be, which is relaxed but focused with a controlled aggression. And that status-driven mentality is often not out of arrogance with players. Sometimes it can be with certain people, but for most people, it's out of a need for affirmation. And we all battle that because we all have some need for social acceptance, but it's placing that value in those who love you for who you are, not what you do, and understanding how all that works together. I recognize that not not only in baseball, but as a sniper school, I went as a new guy and I looked up to the other guys there. And one of the instructors came up to me when I was struggling and he said, listen, man, if you don't believe in yourself, then why should anybody else? But even more profoundly, he said, look, we need snipers. There's two wars and you're a capable guy. You have natural ability, but we're not going to be able to make use of your capability because you're more concerned about gaining the acceptance of your peers than embracing your god-given best and giving it to the team and i changed my mentality into that and i passed the test and then i went to an advanced sniper school and me and my shooting partner won top snipers so by switching to a team first mind it had an immediate impact on my individual ability to perform in high pressure so we translate them I and yeah certainly some of them are more relevant than others but combat eliminates the clutter it is a competitive environment but the outcome is ultimate because it involves life and death so when bullets start flying both ways and we're not talking about the joint Operations center and the admirals and the generals who are removed and disconnected from that part of it right we're talking real fighting and when that happens a way of doing a way of thinking or a way of interacting is either effective or it's not and all that matters is effectiveness and you shave that down you learn what works there translate it to something else for someone and it works for them too.
0: Yeah, and I think too can I mean is this a good time do you think for you want to talk about the yips and viewing that as an injury and and kind of the definition yeah. you want to get into?
1: Yeah, so with the injury, I look at I mean the brain's an organ, right? And it is it is not producing what we need for optimal performance or what we want to have in in an action that we're trying to produce. So I do look at like an injury hmm. because it's involuntary. So the yips is not the same thing as being nervous consciously aware of the environment what's at stake what i'm going to gain in success and lose in failure and because of that i can't focus and because i'm not focused i can't play well because i'm just i'm just too nervous okay i have high pressure composure in my traditional performance training where i work with players and teams outside of the yips to address that that's part of what I think sports psychology gets wrong is they're defining it as such, treating it as such, and they're not getting to the foundational cause of why this is occurring. So it is a mechanical interruption that's taking place. Anytime we're trying to move an object from point A to point B, shooting a bullet, throwing a ball, or hitting a ball, and it doesn't go to where it want, we want it to go, it's because there's, there's a mechanical interruption, whether that's due to ignorance, I don't know how to hit it right, a lack of awareness, I'm doing something different than I normally do today. Or in this case, what's so frustrating about the yips is you're very aware of the mechanical interruption. You can YouTube videos of people with the yips putting and the club face move, and they don't even strike the ball square. In baseball, you could see the hand gets stiff, and it flies high in arm side. And as they try to extend through it, they have no choice. As the hand gets tight, I've got a ball here, and it wraps around the side because they can't get that extension because tension is being introduced into the muscle groups. But that tension that's being introduced into our muscle groups is not, I'm sorry, is being initiated by a subconscious, the the central nervous system's perception of threat. So an example would be if if out of nowhere I threw a punch at someone's chest, instinctually without thought, they're going to make their pectoral muscles tight to absorb that blow to protect the vital organs. That's the body's natural instinctual response. They don't think I will now engage muscle groups and make it tight to protect myself. Just like when you're almost getting a car accident, you make tight you flinch up, right? So cause and effect is a whole, we just have to spend another hour on cause and effect. But what's occurring actually is as they walk up, okay, and typically there's no elevated level of nerves or anxiety or anything like that, or that tingling sensation, all right? They walk up, they go to chip or putt, that tension's engaged in the joint where we need fine dexterity. Any tension in a joint in a sport where we shoot a basketball or you set in volleyballs where you see it or in baseball when you throw it uh, is going to cause a big miss. So it's it's involuntary tension being being initiated by the subconscious. If you if you think of conscious and subconscious, I like to call them intentional and automated. So it's an automated Engagement of muscle tension in the joint where I need dexterity. And you're very aware of it when it starts happening because you're missing really bad, but you don't know why. That's where the anxiety kicks in and you get that tingling sensation. Because what happens after that? You're going into a setting around all of your peers and you love this game and you want to keep playing it and all of this stuff is at stake. You want to get drafted, all of that. And then you start to feel the loss of in your extremities. Why does that happen? Because when we receive an, an adrenaline hit or something similar, the blood is can, gets extrapolated from the extremities and contained in the vital organs to keep you alive if you were to receive a mortal wound. We experience that in combat all the time. So that starts occurring on top of the tension that's occurring, and then that's when it gets really, really bad for people and so on and so forth. So. I hope that answers your question. Well, it
0: does. But I also think like you mentioned something with sports psychologists, because like I've seen this, you know, i covered basketball for a long time. I see people go through this on the free throw line quite a bit that can't shoot foul shots. They have yeah. this effect, yep. okay? Yep. But this is not, I, I just want you to just paint the picture for the folks at home. Like this is not, they have to understand this is not something you can just breathe through. Cause a lot of times it's like the sports psychologist is telling people like, you got to breathe. You, I mean, you hear that in golf a lot. So I, I didn't know if there was anything else to touch on there that uh, making people just understand they can't breathe through this. And maybe like, what is the first step to fixing this? Like, what is the first step to address something that's subconscious?
1: All right. So I'll talk through some of the issues that I see with mainstream sports psychology as fair as I as I know (laughs) how, because I've been very frustrated with this, starting from when I talked to a psychologist back in the college days. And I felt like and I'm putting my trust and faith and time and effort and resources into this person. And I felt like he was telling me what was wrong with me and frustrated that his solutions were not working because I wasn't somehow doing them correctly. Instead of listening to me, describe my experience on the field and help me develop a solution. Generally speaking, they are not defining the problem correctly. Okay. And then, you, you know, from there it's this kind of real passive soft, weak approach to yeah, like the deep breathing or box breathing, or there's some rumor out there that Navy SEALs do all this box breathing. I've never been taught it. I don't know anyone who does. I've never done it myself. I mean, it's, it's, I I don't know where that comes from, but, or, or this deep visualization. Every time I tried to visualize when I was struggling with the yips, all I could see was a bad throw, (laughs) you know? And sometimes players do that because it gets the worst case scenario out of their head before they go ahead and do it. They'll visualize a really, really negative, bad, bad thing to happen. And then it's, sort of a, a pro player in double a was doing that before pitchers fielding practice he was visualizing himself being completely shamed prior to going out there instead of all this success you know kind of doing it the opposite of how he was taught from the other groups but um and basically the way i look at that is it's like we're getting an ice and tape you know you're getting your tape and ice on a pulled hamstring and then going out there and trying to sprint uh, and steal second base where you know if you pull your hamstring you're going to you're going to rehabilitate that thing properly. So in the same way with the YIPS is we have to have a rehabilitation process and there is nothing that anyone is going to say to you in an office that is going to spark a psychological thought process or an emotional reaction that is going to relieve you from the YIPS immediately. You have to go throw, but understanding or strike the ball. And understanding how to do that, to retrain the subconscious, to trust free dexterity and build back into the thresholds where the tension is being engaged is vital. And so so there's that. And I think that they don't want to listen a lot of times. I have, When I was working with Tyler Matzik, who was out of baseball for five years and then won a World Series with the Atlanta Braves, While I was working with him, it got back to me later that a mental skills coach at one of the teams he had played for previously called his agent and told his new agent who was trying to get him back into the league that he should drop him and that I should stop working with him because we were providing him false hope and prolonging his suffering because Major League Baseball had provided all the resources, I guess the best in the world, that there were to offer and it's just funny to me that someone who is intelligent, and I think really meant well. I think he really had Tyler's well-being and heart there, probably. And he didn't say it directly to me. It got back to me, so it is a bit of hearsay, and I want to be fair and honest about that. But the thing I was thinking when I heard that was, okay, here's a guy as a SEAL who has been able to perform in some of the most extreme environments that you possibly can be in, and had the yips himself and taught himself how to throw again and can now throw. Do you think I may have something of value to share with this man. Right. But it all works itself out the way it needs to, because Tyler got back into the big leagues, got back with the Braves, won a world series was a vital part of it. And then, you know, I don't know the, for, for, (laughs) I don't know like what what I should say on podcasts to say. You can look up his nickname if you want the nickname that he got for his ability to compete in high pressure. So, I think the, you know, the, what what players tell me, honestly, is they come to me and they tell me that the, if they go to sports psychologists and it doesn't work and it's the same story over and over again or the tapping or whatever else. And they said typically the person they look like, that they don't, they're not in good shape and stuff like that. And it's like, if you're, and, and I don't mean to be, but man, if you don't look like you can lift a 20-pound dumbbell off of the rack and you're talking to somebody about mental toughness or having some discipline or whatever else, I mean, how are they supposed to take you seriously if you if you're not walking the walk yourself? And this now they the nice sounding stuff that sounds like it should sound nice, like trust the process and this and that doesn't really do a whole lot for a guy who's about to go compete with everything on the line and millions of dollars at stake and it's just it's I don't know. It's it, it's the, the solutions they're giving are, it's not that they're not effective or don't have a role in this at all. It's they're too simple to be a comprehensive approach to a full term solution. I, I guess that would probably summarize it for me on.
0: Yeah. And I, I see here. this as a health coach all the time. I mean, it helps when I'm coaching patients, you know, when I at the, at the clinic that I work for, it really resonates when they know that you've sat in their seat. And you've been through that, and it, it, it's you can't replace that. You know, you yeah. can't replace the fact that you earn ultimate respect already because you've been where you've been and you've made it through this on the other side. You've you've, you've got something to offer them. So, you're helping athletes through things like this, and you're you're going into uh, doing things with teams that are helping with team building. And then when you're going into corporations. Are you working on team building when you go into the boardrooms too? So I just want to give people a sense of what you're doing from a corporate standpoint too.
1: Yeah, of course. So I think with the corporate groups, it's typically it starts with a keynote presentation, annual sales meeting or a kickoff meeting or something like that is where I'll usually make first contact. So I said, hey, I heard you, somebody heard you speak, said you'd be a good fit. And I go there and I speak. I don't put a whole lot on social media because I just, I'm very uncomfortable with social media, but I do put some out. So I don't have this massive presence. I rely almost entirely on word of mouth and developing relationships the proper way. You know, I mean, if it's effective for people, the rest will take care of itself. And that's exactly what's happened. So we start with a keynote. And then from there, what I like to do is follow up with sustainment training because the Weakness of a keynote is retainability. People remember how they feel. They remember one or two points and they walk out and they apply it. And that's that. But I look at it more like weight room training. If you really, really want to learn something, let's master one of the fundamentals of winning and then move on to the next one. So my, uh, my funnel, if you will, my, my shameless upsell is after the keynote is to meet once a month or once every couple of weeks. Virtually over Zoom, we record it, upload it into a folder, and we master one fundamental. So we spend 30 minutes or so on just one concept. Identity, toughness, confidence, leadership, communication, you name it, high pressure composure. And then we move to the next until we've completed it. At that point, I don't try to stay on retainer forever. I just ask them to recommend me to someone that they do business with whose success would also benefit their own. Because... Whether it's an individual client or a group, if I'm not helping you get to a point where you don't need me around anymore because the knowledge has been transferred, then what's what are we doing? <laughs> you know? exactly.
0: What's the point? Yeah, no, I 100%. Same thing with coaching. Like If I have an individual client, I don't really want them staying with me. If they're staying with me more than a year, they're probably not getting out of it what they should because at some point you want people to get the training wheels off and be able to execute that in the real world. And so everyone knows, like I'm, I'm not, you know, Jason, Jason's not asking me to promote everything he does. I just believe that everything I see from you and why I have you on this podcast is that I see the vibes of what you're putting out into the world and the energy behind it. And that people need this kind of help. So I want to give you some time to even just talk about the work you're doing with your foundation. I know you're working on books. So what are some of these other ways? I feel like you're still serving your country in a way, right? You're just doing it in a different way instead of with a Navy SEAL. So I want you to talk about some of these things you're doing. And I know you're shy and you don't want to toot your own horn. But when someone's putting positivity and and vibes like this out into the world, I like to share it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I, um, I mean, if I could be running around Afghanistan or Iraq with the boys again, then, you know, I would but it's that part of my life is come and gone. But if I, if we can take those experiences and the lessons learned from them in terms of performance through very real world experience and then help others succeed and overcome, whether it's in their personal life, professional life, I, I think that's a good thing to do and do it in a way that's in alignment with the core ethos and values of being the quiet professional that Navy SEALs are supposed to be. So it's not about war stories, although those are proof of concept. So when I say metal toughness is an ability to shift your focus into action and your teammates. And here's why. And here's what motivates it. And here's how you do it when you don't feel like you can. I'll talk about an example of a gunfight where we got a call went out over the radio where I was pinned down and, um, you know, momentarily cut off from my platoon. So but it's not about me. It's not where I talk about a helicopter crash and what I saw my teammates be able to do. So those stories are proof of concept and utilizing those to help others, I think is a good thing, as long as it's done in the right way. And that's what we're trying to do. And that was some of my frustrations with the macro level military leaders coming in, you know, who really didn't do a very good job over the 20 years of these two wars. And also sports psychologists, which generalizing, now there's some I really, really like, you know, mean, Brian Kane is a pal of mine. I think he's awesome and runs the Ironman competition. So I don't want to I don't want to lump everyone in there, but just some of the I mean, players are coming to me and telling me that, well, my sports psychologist told me to stop caring what happens so much. I'm like, well, I'll ask him, let me ask do you, do you think that's possible? Can can you stop caring about what you're doing? Well, no, I don't think so. And I go, well, if you could, would you still want to do what it is you're doing? So let's just honor the reality of the practicality of this. And that's what I want to look at this. here we are, we're implying these things. In a sense, we are the case study, and I mean that humbly. So let's take these lessons learned and then provide practical solutions to other people who are competing in high performance environments. But I never sat down and said, this is what I want to do. It all happened by accident. People kept prying me out to come talk to their teams. And I I would, I did it, and then I just started refining. it. But, the material, it was so much fun because in the high schools, there were teams that had never really won that were winning state championships. There were teams that got max preps number one in the nation, like multiple ones, not the same team multiple times. I mean, it's just amazing. When you when you have a good coach and you have, you know, all the other pieces are in place and you add this to it, it can it can have huge, huge results for people. All those other things need to be in place too, though, first, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the foundation is is an idea that I had when somebody called and they wanted to sponsor a player to work with the Yips, and I didn't have a way for them to write it off. And then it grew. And it's, so it hasn't been we're, – we're filing for a 501 c right now, and we're going to call it the Guardian Foundation. And the idea is to take the fundamentals of winning, just like I work with a pro athlete, say, like Lucas Glover – but work with the fatherless youth of America through first Gold Star families. And then second, teaming up hopefully with organizations such as the Boys and Girls Club and working, utilizing former Navy SEALs to work with fatherless youth, you know, wherever they may be to provide that male mentorship and the foundations of performance, just gearing it towards life. Here's how to Here's, here's how to build confidence. Here's why confidence leaves us. Here's how to perform under pressure. Here's how to lead, right? All the things that uh, that we do just uh, with them. That's the idea. So it's still in the very, very, very beginning pieces.
0: I love that. I love that. That's why I saw it and I, I wanted you to talk about it because I just thought it was a really – really cool concept. And then talk about these books and book projects you got going, you know, this is amazing that you had, I again, thank you for the time that you gave me today to, to do this. Cause you, I know you're busy. So I do appreciate that. But, um, t- talk about these, but the book projects you've got.
1: Well, just as you said, you know, any kind of public presence is kind of awkward for me for a while. I didn't even have a cell phone when I first got out of the Navy. I left one in a cab, I think in Egypt somewhere. And I just, I never got another one. And then my wife made me, <laughs> it was like, that was a long time. It was like 10 years ago. So, but um. I am more reserved in nature, so putting myself out there publicly is awkward, but I do see how teams and people are benefiting from the lessons learned that I share with them. So I'm trying to put those into a book right now. We're not trying. I am. I say trying because, as you can probably tell how I speak, I I get pretty deep in thought. And I want to get it right versus just get it out. And... So I'm writing one right now that is more in alignment with Stonewall Solutions and the fundamentals of winning. It doesn't have anything to do with the YIPS. Now, it would be beneficial for someone struggling with the YIPS to read it because I do talk through those things with clients who are struggling with the YIPS. So that would be, you know, we'll talk about toughness, courage, identity, confidence, mental toughness, team first mind, uh, debriefing, failed outcomes, never quit. And all of those will be supported by a story, just as we said, so the helicopter crash, um, You know, so a couple of gunfights or two to, uh, you know, whatever. And stories, it's not all Navy SEAL stuff. A lot of it's from other parts of my life as well. And then the other one is going to be specifically on how to defeat the Yips, the practical on field or on course solutions that we do to retrain the subconscious to trust free dexterity again and iron out that mechanical interruption that's taking place. You know, if it's involuntary, that's what makes it so – I'm not wanting it to happen, and it's happening anyways. In fact, I'm telling myself not to do it, and I do it anyways. So that's what makes it so difficult to beat. And if I would, I'd like to share this. So if anyone's listening and you are struggling with the yips, please know that you are not mentally weak. And how do I know that? Because in my BUDS class, which is Navy SEAL training, after Hell Week, there were 20 of us left out of 135 men who started and that took a tremendous amount of mental toughness. And at the end of that week, I was there and I still couldn't throw a baseball due to the yips. So if I had proven that I was extremely mentally tough and at the exact same point in life, couldn't throw a baseball due to the yips, then the yips cannot be due to a lack of mental toughness. It philosophically does not follow and it's simply not true. So shed that label and shame and guilt that you have placed on yourself understand it's high achievers who get this. Tyler Matzik is a World Series champion. I was a Navy SEAL. I had it. Lucas Glover's a back-to-back PGA Tour champion now. He had it. You're in good company, and it can be beat. Go to yipsfree.com, read everything and then contact me if yeah, you want. Yeah, give
0: them how the, how the best is to contact. You beat me to the punch because I was going to ask you if you wanted to leave everyone with a message, and oh. you already did that. So you read my mind on that one, but just let everyone know exactly how they can connect with you, and I will link all of that information, of course, in the show notes that we've talked about today. So if you want to just let them know how to connect with you, I'm sure they would, they would love to at least follow you on your low-key social media.
1: So the, there's two websites. One is stonewall-solutions.com. And there you can find all the corporate information, athletic team information, and the mentorship program where myself and Sean Kanaghi, who was my mentor in the SEAL teams and was a 23-year veteran, made it to the highest tiers of special operations, tier one operator. And now I'm his mentor. He's uh, working with players and he's doing an incredible job. He's got several pro players he's working with now, but high school all the way up and the one-on-one mentorship program, all that's at stonewall-solutions.com. YIPS specific information is at yipsfree.com. And then there's all the social media from Instagram to Twitter, LinkedIn, those the traditional ones, and that's as far as I take it. And you can find Jason Kuhn, K-U-H-N, 255, on my personal page. And then there's also Stonewall Solutions and YIPS Free, but... I typically post from my personal page, and I, I don't post that often, but sometimes I get a little a little wild hair, and I get out there, and I start putting out videos and stuff. So.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I really can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing some of your knowledge with us. I think a book is going to be awesome. I think someone to have that book and be able to refer to it and digest that information, because it it's deep. It's deep thoughts. and um, I had the shanks for a while, Jason, and I could relate, because it might not quite be what – it's sort of a form of the yips. I felt like I could never get the club face back to square. So I I get it in far as like being out of control of your physical abilities, So I know there's a lot of people out there that can benefit from this information. I just appreciate you coming on and sharing it with us.
1: No, I appreciate the opportunity. I think that as you were saying early, maybe not exactly in the same manner, but I do think it's, you know, there's always value to be gained from just about anyone who shares something, but If you really want to learn how to do something, learn from someone who's been where you want to go because they've learned a lot along the way. I think experiences is the best teacher and it's meaningful to them because they understand what it feels like, you know?
0: Awesome, awesome. I agree fully 100%. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. That's a wrap for today's episode of Ripple Effect Connection. Now that you've been inspired, here's my call to action for you. Take a moment to reflect on the insights and wisdom shared. I hope you took something from Jason's inspirational story and his influential work. I'm always up for your feedback and any conversations about the podcast on social media, so feel free to connect with me there and let me know what resonated with you. You can always reach out on Instagram, at WholeHealthChristy. You can also always get the full show notes for this and all of my episodes on my website, christyhugiccom podcast. Next, I need you to spread the inspiration like, follow, and especially if you can take the time to review the podcast and share it with others who may benefit from these stories, I'd really appreciate it. Stay tuned for the next episode of Ripple Effect Connection. Let's continue to create waves of change together in 2024.